Hi, this is Gary Meese. Um, had a bit of a technical personal bump um, with my Nick Hillary uh, podcast there. So I'm doing a part two rather than trying to tack two things together. It was getting kind of long anyway. And we're going to do a a dive into less about the case and more about the filmmakers and some other issues. And uh, if you'll hang there in there with me, I think you'll find there is a surprising West Memphis three connection in all this. And uh, I'm going to suggest maybe you shouldn't be all that surprised that there's a West Memphis three connection in all this. Uh, but briefly, we were talking about the, HBO documentary, Who Killed Garrett Phillips, um, in which we looked at uh, the case uh, of Garrett Phillips. Garrett Phillips was a 12-year-old boy. He was found strangled. Uh, ultimately, the suspect became uh, his mother's ex-boyfriend, Nick Hillary. The Phillips family's white, Nick Hillary's black, and honestly, the only reason they did the doc, if, the, if Nick Hillary had been white, there wouldn't be a documentary. The only reason they're interested in this case is not the facts of the case, other than the fact that Nick Hillary's black, otherwise it's a very g generic, it's almost a very generic ex-boyfriend kills girl ex-girlfriend or kills some member of her family the only way that makes this unusual is the victim is a 12 year old boy who if they get killed in those scenarios they're usually innocent bystanders and this particular and he and by nick uh, garrett phillips is certainly innocent in any sense of the word in every sense of the word however he uh, he and Nick Hillary had a very contentious relationship and Nick Hillary pretty clearly had reason to blame Garrett Phillips for the breakup of this relationship that Nick Hillary who gives every appearance of being an extreme control freak um, was unhappy about ending so We'll go on from there. The director of the film, which appeared on HBO, was a lady named Liz Garbus. And she became involved in this because she heard some rumors and she saw that, th that uh, Nick Hillary was black and she thought maybe that th the racial aspect just appealed to her greatly. In other words, it wasn't the fact that Hey, the facts seem to indicate that Nick Hillary is being railroaded by these people or anything like that. It wasn't any of that. It's just, you know, he's a black guy, so let's go up and save him from the white power structure. And uh, to understand where she's coming from, you literally have to understand where she's coming from. So who is Liz Garbus? Elizabeth Freya Garbus came by her interest in prisons and criminal justice reform in an unsurprising way at her father's knee. 
Martin Garvis is routinely described as a legendary civil rights lawyer and free speech advocate with a list of achievements and notable cases too long to list here. And it really is a remarkable list of things he's been involved in. I'm just, but this is not about him particularly. It's about, it is about this world that he, he inhabits, the world of old line civil rights lawyers, free speech advocates, and their progeny and their associates and friends and so forth. In other words, this is a whole little world we're talking about. And it's the, and much of it's based in New York, more specifically Manhattan. But anyway, uh, it's worth noting he was a prominent advocate against capital punishment long before his daughter was even born. And that is where much of the impetus for the wrongful conviction comes from in its opposition to the death penalty. There was an ideological component to the wrongful conviction movement that has deep roots in the more radically leftist movements of the last century, the strong The strong social, political, ethnic milieu is typical of New York and, to a lesser extent, L.A. and Chicago. Uh, many of the key figures went to the same elite schools, uh, and they share a, you know, they eat at the same restaurants, they attend the same plays, they go to the same movie houses, uh, celebrate holidays together. And they share a worldview that has little sympathy with traditional American authority figures. And, you know, as an example, the kind of Ivy League sort of thing, the Ivy League connections going on here, Liz Garvis graduated from Brown. And she seems to be a, and, and she's certainly a, a talented filmmaker. And she seems to be an intelligent woman and, uh, I think she probably thinks she's being very honest and, and helpful and just all around all around good in what in her uh, in her goals and aspirations. Her first film project, The Farm Angola USA, was co-directed with Jonathan Stack, who's another New York documentary filmmaker with a long list of prison-related projects. Now, the film, the farm was nominated for an Academy Award, and it won two Emmys, and it won the Sundance Grand Prize, Grand Jury Prize. So she got off to a great start. Uh, I, one suspects whatever talent in, in industry and intelligence she has, family connections couldn't hurt. Now, she co-founded co her production company, Moxie Firecracker. You know, one of those spicy girl power type company names with a fellow Brown alum, Rory Kennedy, who just happens to be the youngest daughter of Robert and Ethel Kennedy. Not so much, not so much the New York style liberal that we're talking about, but you know, a rather that's a rather high, high caliber, uh, heavyweight uh, liberal progressive family. I think almost anybody can agree. Um, now, Rory Kennedy kicked off her film career 
which has been heavily directed toward progressive issues, with another alum, alum, alumna of Brown, Vanessa Vadim. Now, Vanessa Vadim is the daughter of Roger Vadim, the film director, and Jane Fonda. Uh, the obvious conclusion here is it's a very small world when you start at the top. Uh, Garbus went on to direct such films as The Execution of Wanda Jean and Ghost of uh, Garab. How do you pronounce Abu Garab? <coughs> and, and she also directed a widely seen. I'm sorry, the coughing. I thought I was, that was one of the reasons I took a break, but it didn't seem to stop it completely. There was a widely seen documentary on HBO called There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane which I've watched several times, uh, and concluded that it, I've concluded that it, that particular movie manages to avoid the obvious conclusion that Diane Shuler was indeed drunk and high on pot when she drove the wrong way on the Tacoma State Highway before killing herself and seven others, including her young daughter and three little nieces in a horrific accident. Horrific crash. Um, you know, the only mystery in that movie is what exactly was going through this woman's head that she did this thing. Um, was it deliberate? Was it some sort of suicide attempt? I mean, not suicide attempt. It was a very successful suicide if that's what she was aiming for. Uh, or she, had she drunk herself into some sort of stupor over trying to self-medicate? It, it, th th there's, a, there's a mystery there, but it's not a mystery that whether she's drunk or high. And we spend a great deal of time listening to the husband going on and on about how she couldn't possibly have done this. Oh, you know, she couldn't be an alcoholic. I know her better than this, blah, blah, blah. And there's, you know, there's some sort of backstory there that is with the husband and the wife that's going on there. It's obvious there's something there that is a true, that's a mystery, but it's not such a, probably not such a mystery to the husband, and I do feel some sympathy for him, but not such a mystery to the husband as it is to those of us being subjected to this film that simply won't, you know, spends all this time sort of dodging the obvious conclusion. But that's what a lot of wrongful convict. This isn't a wrongful conviction film, but it's the same. You know, there's the same sort of mindset. Nobody's really guilty of anything, and blah blah blah. Well, yeah, some some people are guilty of things. And Diane Shuler was guilty of being drunk and high when she killed herself and all these people. It's not hard to figure. It's a and it's a sad case and and a horrific case. But. And we don't fully understand her reasons, as I said, but whatever her reasons were, she has no excuse. And of course, there are other media figures involved in the, this particular uh, documentary, Who Killed Garrett Phillips? I was mildly shocked 
though I shouldn't have been, to find a figure from the West Memphis 3 case popping up here. Sarah Johnson, who was known as Sarah Johnson Ridlick back when she was married to a billionaire shipping tycoon from San Francisco, was an executive producer for the Devil's Knot movie, the thoroughly unwatchable drama about the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, now Johnson, who is known for funding documentaries on social justice issues, and basically she has lots and lots of money to toss around, so she tosses some around and has been known to complain when somebody doesn't handle the pocket change the way she would like. But anyway, like Garbus, she's the beneficiary of a rich family legacy. Johnson's father is Charles B. Johnson, whose father her, and her grandfather, Charles B. Johnson's father, founded Franklin Templeton Investments. Charles B. Johnson, her father, became the president and CEO of Franklin Templeton in 1957 at the age of 24. Again, you know, it helps to start at the top if you want to be a big success. He retired in 2013, but still owns the San Francisco Giants, and he's worth over $5 billion. Uh, in the Hillary case, Johnson or Johnson Redlick she appears briefly in this film, uh, helped acquire the services of, there's a dinner at her home with her, apparently her boyfriend. They run some sort of organic farm in upstate New York. She's, she is a trustee at Sarah Lawrence College, which is located in that area. But, you know, it's, it's, there's no easy, it's not an easy trip to at the local, an airport from, that area, but you know, she has the means to be able to, anytime she wants to, to go to Hollywood and drop a few million here and there, or, or pick up a, a, an Academy Award for being a producer on a movie that she really may not have had much to do with other than coughing up some change. But anyway, um, she did, in this case, she helped acquire the services of Norman Siegel He's a former executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union and a noted civil rights lawyer. And again, this is someone who comes from the very same world that Liz Garbus's father comes from. In fact, I'm, there's no doubt that they know each other well. I mean, I don't know that for an absolute fact. I'd be amazed if they didn't know each other well. To New York lawyers who are prominent civil rights lawyers, they know each other. And uh, she also acquired the services of Earl Ward, who's a black attorney with an extensive history of defending murder cases. You know, and since there's, this is a black defendant, we gotta throw the, a bone to the black attorney as well. You know, it helps to have a black face on the team and I'm not taking anything away from Earl Ward's abilities or whatever, but he's there because he's black. His abilities are probably outstanding, I'm not saying that. 
but he's there because he's black. If, if the defendant weren't black and Oral Ward weren't black, Oral Ward, if the defendant were white, Oral Ward wouldn't be there. If, if Earl Ward wasn't black, he wouldn't be involved in the defense of Nick Hillary, no matter how, what his civil rights record was otherwise. Norman, uh, Norman Siegel's <coughs> a whole other breed of animal. Siegel said he became involved in the case at the urging of the Amsterdam News, a black newspaper based in New York City. So let me ask you, do you think the Amsterdam News would throw its weight behind a white defendant in upstate New York facing similar charges under similar circumstances, otherwise similar circumstances? Of course not. Now, uh, Natasha Haverty is featured prominently in the documentary because of her work on North North Country Public Radio, and uh, she's a, I hesitate to use the term reporter, but I guess that's a journalist reporter, but I'm sure that's how she would think of herself. She uh, early on worked to build a case for Henry's innocence, and she's not a, she's an activist, she's not an objective observer, uh, but she rationalizes her coverage by citing, which is all very much pro-Henry, by citing her positive coverage of other innocuous, it's really hilarious. She shows pictures of like a, some sort of police picnic or something that she deigned to cover as, uh, as some sort of balancing act with her, for her coverage of uh, the Hillary case. So she picks out these innocuous police activities as if coverage of a police-sponsored community event outweighs her obvious bias in the case. And that's just not the case. She's gone on to work for several years in the Prison Time Media Project for uh, North, Country, North Country Public Radio. Now, and that's one of a number of regional radio networks tied into the National Public Radio. Now, NPR, you may like it, you may not, but it claims it's unbiased objective but much of its reporting tilts heavily to the left and I think anybody with any sense of objectivity and reason would could would have <coughs> <coughs> would have to agree to that Haverty is currently working on a book about a team of Prison inmates who regularly defeated teams from schools such as Harvard and MIT. <laughs> I mean, whose side is she on in this? Prison inmates are the good guys. Harvard and MIT are the bad guys. So this is a matter of, take that, you insufferable elite pansies. We done whipped your ass. Brian, Brian Mann, who worked with, <coughs> excuse me, Brian Mann, who worked with Haberty on the NCR, NCPR project, the Prison Time Media Project, described her work 
We'd want to understand what had happened here in New York 40 years ago that caused then-Governor Nelson Rockefeller to really <coughs> redefine how crime and justice are thought about. And what he did, of course, is he pushed through these laws that shifted the idea and the problem of drug abuse and addiction away from a medical and healthcare framework to a very aggressive police and prison framework. Those decisions changed America, sent millions of people to prison. They affected everything from race relations to small town economies. So we really wanted to tackle all of that. And my response to this is, really, really, just when was the drug problem viewed in a medical and health care framework in this country? Did Nelson Rockefeller really redefine how crime and justice would be thought about concerning drugs? Did the millions of people sent to prison not violate state and federal laws that prescribed incarceration? Rockefeller, who decided to position himself on, as tough on crime for political purposes, and by the way, Rockefeller's been dead for a very long time now, in case you haven't heard, did institute some of the toughest law, drug laws in the nation. Uh, the Rockefeller drug law signed in 1973 as the nation was dealing with an unprecedented epidemic in drug use set the penalty for selling two ounces or more of heroin, morphine, opium, cocaine, or marijuana or possessing four or more ounces of the same drugs at a minimum of 15 years to life in prison with a maximum of 25 years to life. So basically, it was aimed at putting away drug dealers. Which still doesn't sound like such a bad idea. And as a matter of fact, there are laws in all the states that aim to put away drug dealers. So we're, really, all we're doing is quibbling about how long we're going to put them away. 150,000 New Yorkers, not the millions man-sided, ultimately served time under the statutes. It's difficult to see how tougher, tougher drug laws in one state somehow changed America. Criticism of the laws is old news, with a number of prominent figures on the left and right criticizing the laws as draconian. Since many of those busted were black or other minorities or from low-income backgrounds, drug law enforcement has often been framed as a social justice issue, and this has certainly been the case in New York. New York State I'm speaking of, uh, and the laws were moderated somewhat in 2004. But all the drugs cited remain illegal in New York and subject to criminal penalties. While marijuana has not been legalized, possession of less than two ounces bring all, brings only modest fines. Possession of more than two ounces or sales of any weight of marijuana can still bring jail or prison time. So... We can criticize the war, you know, criticize the war on drugs, but got to come up with an alternative if you don't want people to go to jail for prison. I mean, to go to jail for drugs, selling drugs, or using drugs, possessing drugs. Uh, or you could just legalize them all. I'm not sure that the NPR crowd really is going to go for that. I haven't heard that suggested. 
by many of them. But uh, what, did, what was the Prison Time Project about? It wasn't really about exploring these other possibilities. It, the Prison Time Project focused heavily on uh, sympathetic portrayals of those doing time for drug sales or possession. The appeal was to emotions, not reason, with topics such as battered women and homosexuality getting prominent play, all straight from the social justice playbook. The project relied heavily on contributions from a campaign on Kickstarter, a crowdfunding platform notable for its appeal to sentiment and heavily weighted to progressives. The Kickstarter proposal suggests that the changes in drug laws brought about mass incarceration. And ignoring the self-evident fact that drug sales and usage over the last 50 years have skyrocketed. And if drugs are going to be against the law, with criminal penalties attached, prison sentences will proportionally skyrocket. Assuming the laws are enforced at all. If the problem is that wide swaths of drugs are against the law, then legalization would solve the crime problem. Barring that extreme remedy and with street drugs continuing to be illegal now and for the foreseeable future with criminal penalties attached, and barring alternatives such as deeply funded and readily available treatment programs, building sympathy for the poor mistreated drug dealers filling the prisons is simply an excuse in feeling good about our misdirected emotions. Rightful conviction, but wrong laws. Rightful laws, but wrongful convictions. The media bring forth no solutions, but that's not their objective. The wrongful conviction malady is not the disease. It's just a symptom of a deeper, probably incurable disease of the spirit. A disaffection with tradition, with the police, with the justice system, with America, with the West, with Christians, with whites, with traditional family roles, with men, and particularly with men in uniforms. The sickness is born out of an abiding resentment that projects its own intolerance, fear, and self-protected arrogance into the world at large. The relief comes in the illusion that I'm a good person. No, you emphatically are not. And that's it from the case against with Gary Meese. I think I'll be back again soon with more uh, on Jesse Miskelly's confession. One of his many confessions. The first of his many confessions. But I'm going to do some forays into other cases from time to time. And the Nick Hillary case popped up as one that really deserved my attention. So, have a good evening. Talk, talk to you again soon.